0: Alright, if you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. am going to finish the chapter today. Paul, in the whole section that we've talked about so far, he is making contrasting statements between who we are apart from Jesus Christ and now who we are as those who have been saved. And he continues this idea of what it means to be alive in Christ In verses eleven through twenty two, and that's what we want to focus on today. So Ephesians two verse eleven. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, covenants of promise, having no hope. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you once again this morning, and we would ask that your word would be made alive to us today, that our hearts would be quickened to hear what you have to say through this text to us. We're in desperate need of your word today, Lord. Like Jesus was in the desert when Satan tempted him, Lord, he feasted on nothing but your word alone. And we have no greater meal to eat than your word this morning. And so, God, you have laid it out, in a sense, as a as a meal before us. And so, as your people, I pray that we would partake with joy today. In Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. So who it's it's always good in thinking about the text that we're reading. Uh we need to ask questions like uh why is it written? Uh who is it written to? What answer, what questions were they trying to answer uh in writing this kind of a thing? And so a basic question to ask this morning is who is Paul writing to here? Well, I I, I hope it's obvious there in verse 11. He's writing to Gentile believers that were in Ephesus. Even though they were outside the Jewish system, they would have been really familiar with the Jewish practice of circumcision and understood what Paul was saying here. Paul mentions his intentions right at the start. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, remember written these things to for you to remember what does he want them to remember well first of all our verse 11 starts with saying therefore so all of the things that have come before in chapter 2 he's got in his mind because of all of these things paul says now i want you to remember what has come before he wants them to remember how things used to be so that they would have a greater sense of gratitude towards god and love towards one another I think we can all identify with this to some degree. You know, we think back to a certain situation that was really hard. And now God has brought us through that. And we can look back and say, man, I know God better because of what he has brought me through. And we can remember that and be thankful. The Gentiles were not just, were not joined in the flesh like the Jewish people were in the Jewish covenant. God gave them rules to set them apart. But Paul says here that the Gentile Christians before Christ were separated from God on a whole lot of different levels, physically, spiritually, economically, all of these things, they were separated from God. I mean, look at verse 12. Gentiles were not part of the commonwealth or community of Old Testament Israel, and therefore they were, they were apart from God. They were strangers who had no hope. I'm not even reading that into it. It says they were without hope. So this Gentile audience understood exactly what Paul's saying. They knew what being excluded felt like. They knew what this separation meant. I think there's a good chance that the Jews were who were proud of their heritage, maybe stuck it to the Gentiles sometimes about their circumcision and how close they are to God and how much they are God's people. They just probably wouldn't let the Gentile Christians forget it in a lot of ways and a lot of times. And so Paul is writing here to correct some things, to set some things straight, and he does it with another contrast. And I didn't really pick up on this until we got into chapter two, but Paul's just writing in contrast here and he's setting it up for another beautiful one. Here's what he's saying. These are in your notes. Here's what he's saying to the Gentiles. Apart from Christ, you didn't have a people. Apart from Christ, you were separated from God. And apart from Christ, you just flat out had no hope. You just had no hope. It says that they didn't have the covenant promises that God gave to guys in Jewish history like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, Israel, David. The Gentiles didn't know these guys. They weren't part of their lineage and heritage. And so they did not know God and they did not know hope. But here's the contrast, and Paul has been setting it up so far. In verse 4, he said, but God, right? Those were the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture, I think. And now look at verse 13. He does a very similar thing here. He says, all of this was true, but now. Right? Here comes the contrast again, but now. So I, I think we need to kind of pause for a second and see what Paul is aiming at when he's writing these kinds of things. But now, as I was reading this, it's almost like Paul has this old school scale in his mind, right? With the two the two things and they go up and down depending on the, the weight of the objects. And he's just been piling up things on the one side of the scale. And it's it's to the point where the people over there see all of this and they're not disagreeing with him, but they're just left without any hope. The scale is so far tipped, there's no possible way that people here could do enough good to move the scale in their way. There's nothing that they could do. And so just at the moment when they are without hope and there's like no light at the end of the tunnel, Paul drops this bomb and he says, but now because of Christ, and it's like he puts Jesus on the other side of the scale and the scale just falls apart. It's not just that it's it's weighed equally now. It's, the scale is no more. There's no need for a scale because Christ has done it all. And so Paul is getting at that in saying it these ways. He's saying everything that you once knew, everything that you once were because of Christ has been turned upside down. Brothers and sisters, in 2019, Jesus still does the same thing in your lives and in my life and the life of sinners across the world. He still moves and does this kind of a thing. But look at what he's saying. You were dead, but now you're alive. Here's the contrast. You were children of wrath, but now you're his workmanship. You were following this world. You were slaves to Satan. Now you are saturated in grace. You used to be living for yourselves, but now in verse 10, he says, you have a divine purpose. God has created you for good works. And now here in the text for today, he's saying the same sort of thing. In contrast, he's saying you used to be separated from God's people, but now you are members of the same family. You used to have no access to God. Now you have it because of Christ. You used to be strangers, now you're saints. What a hope to give Gentile believers in that day and age. What a hope to give the lost in our day and age. To go and tell them the truth about how they're separated from God, just as Jason showed with the wall this morning to the kids. We're not only separated from God, but we're separated from one another by sin. And this text tells us beautifully that because of Christ, the wall is gone. The wall is gone. How has God accomplished this? He tells us right here in verses 13 and verses 16, he says, by the blood of Christ and by the cross. By the blood of Christ and through the cross. And so this is why our songs are going to be about the blood And about the cross. Because Paul identifies these things as the major components of how we can have fellowship with God. And fellowship with one another. God has atoned for our sins by substituting Jesus on the cross for us. Atonement. Think about Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. This is how he has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility that stood between God and man. You've heard this text before. I'll just read it to us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. That's how Paul can say he's done this in his flesh. Because his flesh was broken on the cross. Jesus' substitutionary atonement crushed the separation between a holy God and a sinful man. This, but this is the precise picture that he wanted to communicate here. It's just like the temple and the curtain being torn when Christ breathed his last. His flesh was also torn in the same way on the cross. What does Paul say the blood of Christ has done exactly? What has the, the cross accomplished. I pointed these things out in your notes, and I want you to look at them with me. All of these things are done because of Jesus' blood being shed on the cross. Here they are. Those who were far off have been brought near. Those who have been far off have now had the hostility between them and God eliminated, and they've been made at peace with God. The blood and the cross have removed the requirements of the law. They have united the covenant people of God, Israel, with those outside, the Gentiles. They've given both Jews and Gentiles access to the Father through the Spirit. The cross and the blood have given outsiders a seat at the table. The cross and the blood have integrated individuals into God's own family, into his household. So Jesus' blood on the cross had an effect on God, but it had an effect on his people too. Now, we live in a world full of rivalries, Cardinals versus Cubs, iPhones versus Android phones, Mac versus PCs, Pepsi versus Coke, right? And you could think of a million more. Well, guess what? This was the same way in the culture that Paul is writing to. The rivalries were big. Now we tend, especially in our connected age, we're on one side or the other. And it seems to be now to argue your point, you just scream louder. Right? That's what we do now. If you want to be right, you got to just yell and be nasty to the people that don't agree with you. That's how we prove our point in 2019. And it's really silly because people get really irritated and angry about goofy, meaningless stuff like Coke and Pepsi and that sort of thing. The tensions that were going on in Ephesus when Paul wrote this was way more important than what operating system is running your computer or your phone, right? It was more important than what kind of soda you want to drink. The rivalry between Jews and Gentiles, it ran deep, and it was less than friendly. We'll just put it that way. This rivalry was cultural. Think about this. Jews had rituals, feasts, and ceremonies that set them apart from other people groups. This rivalry was religious. Gentiles did not know the God of Israel it was also racial the Jews boasted of having the blood of Abraham Isaac Jacob David running in their veins the divide was deep but now we read in this text Paul is saying to the Christians in Ephesus he's saying because of Christ the enemies are now friends He says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. God is bringing together Gentile and Jew, two men who were at odds by deep divides. He is now reconciling to one another, making one man because of Christ, because of the blood, because of the cross, that wall of hostility that existed between these two people groups, between these two entrenched rivals was broken, it was shattered, it was killed by Jesus' blood on the cross. And so for for Paul to say, you're one person, was huge. It was monumental in their understanding of the gospel. Because up until Jesus, everybody was in one of two camps, one of two groups. You were either a Jew, or you were not. You were Gentile, you were Greek, You were a barbarian, okay? You were a Jew or you were anything else. But the division, that division between Jew and Gentile has now just been transcended by a new identity that Christians had together because of the cross, because of his blood. And so look at verse 14. I just want to point out, Grammar once again, but look at, look at the pronouns that are used. Paul was saying you speaking to the Gentiles. He was saying you, but then it shifts here in verse 14. And now he's, he's saying our, he's saying we, do you see what he's doing? He's drawing these people groups together to help them understand now in Christ. It's we, it's us, it's our inheritance, Both Jew and Gentile now have the same hope. It doesn't come from the blood that's running in your veins. It comes from the man who died on the cross. That's where the hope now comes from. We are not known any longer by our heritage, by where we come from. There are no outsiders in the faith. There should be no second-class citizens in heaven. And brothers and sisters, there should be absolutely zero hint of that in the church. When a sinner is saved by grace, we aren't to look at the color of their skin or the dialect that they speak or any of those other things to see if we should celebrate that or not. We celebrate that because God has done a work in their life. If it's genuine, fruit is going to follow, and we're going to see it. It's going to be evident. We see that from Jesus' own teachings. But, man, Christians ought to be the first ones to jump up in line and hug our brothers and sisters not to disparage them and to doubt and to cast shadows and all of that. I mean, we should jump up in joy and join with the angels because grace changes everything. It does. Now notice in these verses, as Jason already pointed out to the kids, that there's a two-fold reconciliation process that takes place because of Jesus' blood on the cross. We are brought near to the Father, but we're also brought near to one another. It's vertical, and it's horizontal. So not only do we share the same DNA as Jesus, we share it with the church. We share it with our brothers and sisters. Look at the words that he uses in this text. He says, fellow citizens. He says that we are built together. We are joined together. This is a Christian's new identity in Christ. Every person who puts their faith in Christ is a full citizen of heaven from that moment on. And they don't have to do anything else to earn it. They don't have to do anything else for other Christians to treat them like a full citizen of heaven. In the time period that this was written, Roman citizenship was a big deal. We see this come out in Acts 22. Paul is, is captured and he is going to be, he's going to be beaten. And then he says, basically, are you sure you want to you want to beat a Roman citizen? And then all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Hold on. We didn't know all of this information. And so they get to the core of it, and they find out he was Roman citizen by birth. And so that was able to get Paul a fair trial. So with Roman citizenship brought amenities. It brought privileges in those days. I think about our citizenship in America. God bless our country and people who have fought to keep it free in this way. It is a wonderful thing that we can gather here and not fear men bursting through our doors with guns. I praise God for that, and I think that we should. But I also think of what Paul is saying in this letter. He's not saying that citizenship on earth is insignificant, but he's saying that there is something more significant. Your citizenship of heaven is more significant than your citizenship here on earth. Now, does it matter where you came from? You belong. And he can put us all on that level because it's not just chosen Israel anymore. It's every Jew that believes and every Gentile that believes. Now you belong. But you know what? Paul takes it even further than citizenship. And I want us to see that. I think it probably gave... The Jews in that time, you know, this warm, fuzzy feeling to think that the Gentiles now had the same privileges as them. Yeah, it's cool that, you know, you now have the same stuff that we have. That's pretty neat. I'm glad that you could have that, be given that, even though you don't really deserve it. We'll we'll share it with you kind of a thing. Paul doesn't leave it there. He doesn't stop at citizenship. He goes somewhere that hits a whole lot closer to home. He says, now Jewish brothers and sisters... Now you think of Gentile brothers and sisters as family. As family. Gentiles weren't just fellow citizens. Now they were brothers and sisters in Christ. Now they were, as Romans 8 says it, they are co-heirs with Christ. Imagine hearing that. Listen to Galatians 3.28. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All the earthly separations that we throw up, our heritage, our nationality, all of those things in the body of Christ, Paul says, mean nothing. We are all on the same level. We are all united with Christ together. How is this possible? How can how can now every Gentile believer quote Psalm 23? At the end, David, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Every Gentile could now claim that. How could this be possible? Chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says every believer is now adopted as a son or a daughter. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Believers now all have the same father. Verse 10 of chapter 2. And then also, as we'll get into it, chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians, we all have responsibilities in the family. These are all familial terms that Paul is using. Adoption, brothers and sisters, co-heirs. I think about our families. Kids, do you guys have jobs at home? One of Emory's jobs is to do what? Feed the chickens. That often becomes dad's job. <laughs> Take out the trash, right? That's the one I was thinking of. So when our trash can gets full, our strapping 10 year old boy goes and he takes the trash out. You, you do this in your families too. I don't know if you, maybe you have a chore chart or if it's just kind of a given or if it's just whatever needs to be done, but we have jobs in our families and we do, when we do those jobs well, how is the dynamic in the family? It's, it's usually pretty good. But if there's, if there's tension and if there's whining, not that your kids would ever do that, but if there's disagreements or obstinance, th- then there's a little bit more tension. So whether you're vacuuming or whether you're cutting grass or raking leaves or doing the laundry or whatever it is, when we do our job well, the family dwells together in more in unison than if we didn't. I heard it said that the church is family living together on mission, but be careful not to treat the church as a hotel visiting a place. Occasionally giving a tip. If you're served well, rather see the church as a part of your Christian identity and understand that we all have a role to play in God's household. Every one of us does. He's gifted some people for some things And he's gifted other people for other things. And it's the same way in the church. And we know this. We talked about this at more length when we did our Together series back a couple of months ago. We know that it's God's design. It's God's good design to dwell together in unity, not separated from each other. Christian, you need the church more than you know. If you think you need the church a lot, you're right, but you need it more than that. If you're not a regular part of the community of believers, you're not following the New Testament principles and pattern of what it means to follow Christ. I mean, we can't read this text in Ephesians chapter 2 and honestly not see the importance of the local church in this passage. It's there. God has removed the wall, not only between us and God, which which is amazing and life-changing to begin with, but Paul doesn't just end it there. He says it's removed from one another. That, that has huge implications to our daily lives. But remember, this is God's purpose in the church. He's gonna say that in the next chapter, the mystery, as Paul calls it in chapter three. But it's that people from all backgrounds and all geographical places are going to be a part of God's body. We see this played out in the book of Revelation. We see from people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation are there worshiping God anything more powerful to a lost world than to see people from all backgrounds and all ethnicities united together worshiping Jesus Christ? Could there be anything more powerful? We should welcome new believers. We should welcome new people, but not just welcome them. We should pursue them. Guys, we're the church, not just in the walls that are built here. Really, if you want to get down to it, we're more accurately the church when we're outside of these walls. And so we need to pursue people and not just people that look like us, not just people that talk like us or have the same background as us. We should pursue people of diverse backgrounds and diverse belief systems. We should love the poor. We should seek justice for the oppressed. We should care for the widows and the orphans, not just the ones that have the same skin color that we do. Lastly, I want us to notice something in the last couple of verses of this chapter, 20 through 22. Paul makes an analogy, and he talks about stones in God's temple. Strangers have become saints. Jews and Gentiles now have the same father. And these truths are evidenced by the fact that we are all part of the same thing. Paul calls it a holy temple. He calls it a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in verse 22. The foundation of this temple, he lists pretty clearly right here. He says the apostles and the prophets, those who have gone before us, those who have spoken the words that God has given them to speak, it's because of God's work in these men and women that we are where we are today. We praise God for them. But look at who the cornerstone is. It's like the song that we sang this morning, Christ alone is our cornerstone. He gives it security. He stabilizes the whole building, just like a cornerstone does for an actual physical building. Paul says this isn't quite the the typical kind of physical structure. Look at verse 21. He says that this thing grows. He says that it grows. So we have to understand that there will be no unity and no growth in the church if Christ is not the cornerstone. If we're going to unite on anything, whether it be doctrine or whether it be the color of the carpet, if we're going to be in unison, it's going to be because Jesus is our cornerstone. He is the rock that we are founded on. And so Paul likens believers to stones in the structure. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 2.5. He says, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So Christ is the cornerstone. The prophets and the apostles were on top of him. And believers through the years are on top of them. And all of this is a growing structure. When Nikki and I and our family lived in Troy, we had a little house in a subdivision. And uh, I'm, well, I'm cheap. And so I didn't want to buy those expensive paving stones to make a, a stacked wall. And so... I've, my parents had a big stack of rocks, so I hauled a bunch of just random rocks, and I was gonna make a dry stacked you know, flower bed wall. Some of you have probably done this before, uh, but these rocks were anywhere from pebbles to 150 pounds, and I had to use a bar to move them with. And so uh, the highest part of my wall was probably, uh, I don't know, two, two and a half, three feet. So it wasn't that big. It wasn't like I was making an 18-foot wall. But even that was hard enough because I'm using rocks of all. I mean, they got knobs on them. I don't know where they came from, but they got knobs on them. Some of them have long little parts. And in order to get them to fit together, guess what I had to do? Some of them I had to get a a hammer and a chisel and break chunks off. Some of them I took and I lifted up and I dropped them on top of another rock to break them into smaller pieces so I could use them. And so when I did all of these things, then I could start putting them together. And like it should go, I used the biggest one as the corner, right? That was going to give stability to the corner where it curved around and make it look good. Uh, I, I didn't do a fantastic job. You wouldn't want to hire me, I don't think. But uh, we drove by not too long ago, and it's still standing. So praise the Lord, my dry st- stacked wall still stands. But if I if I would have just gone up there and just started setting stuff on top one another without doing any kind of adjusting or any kind of you know using one or putting it aside and using a different one that might fit better, that thing would have fallen over after the first freeze and rain. It would have just it would have been done. Guys, I think you know where I'm going with this. We're stones in the foundation of the temple of God, and sometimes God uses a chisel to whack parts off of us that just don't fit very well. And and oftentimes, in the context of the body of Christ, he uses a brother or sister as the chisel. But that's hard, isn't it? And yet, this is God's loving way that the church is designed. Sometimes it takes some chipping away at us to make us fit together better. Sometimes it's a painful process. But you know what happens? When God does that, when he starts chiseling away and sometimes just breaking us to fit better, guess what happens to that wall? It gets stronger and sturdier the better we fit together. And because of Jesus, God's spirit dwells in us personally and us as a community. And here is the thing that struck me the most out of this text this week. Previously, the Gentiles would not have even been allowed to go into the temple. Now they're a part of it. Now they're integrated into the foundation of it. Guys, previously, I was not allowed into the presence of God because of my sin, and you weren't either. But because of Christ, we're not just given access into his presence. We're his children. We're considered his child. So let me remind us of what we've seen today in this passage. We've been brought near to God the Father. We have been given peace with God through Christ. Christ's sacrifice has removed the requirements of the law. Even non-Jews who believe share the promises made to God's people. Every one of us who puts their faith in Christ now has access to the Father Everyone who believes now has a seat at the table in God's household, just like a son or daughter. All of these benefits, though, I have to point out, are for those who believe. If you are content to just skate through life and have not made a decision to follow Christ, you have chosen not to believe. And therefore, these wonderful promises, this wonderful truth, it cannot apply to you because you have not been adopted into the family of God. But the good news is today that you can be given access. God longs for you to be his child, but it takes belief. Do you believe? It doesn't require a minimum donation to the church. It doesn't require you to first attain perfection before God can adopt you as His child. And it doesn't certainly matter that you'll never sin again. It does mean, though, that you abandon your old way of thinking, you abandon your old way of living, and now you live in service to Jesus, to the one who died on the cross in your place. That's what it means. It means dying to yourself after being made alive in Christ. So church, God has given us stuff to do, good works to participate in, so we can more and more faithfully walk in good works because Jesus has done everything necessary for sinners to be made alive and for strangers to be made saints. That is what Jesus has done by his blood through the cross. And this is all to the praise of God's glory. Friends, if you've trusted in Christ, I just encourage you the same way I did last week. Walk in those good works. Those things that God has designed for you to do beforehand, before the foundation of the world, walk in them. But if you've never put your faith in Christ, you can't walk in good works because everything you do apart from him is like filthy rags. So come to Jesus, call out and be saved. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, God, you you don't make this complicated. You don't make this at great cost to us in that physical sense, Lord. We simply see your sacrifice and we just believe. And yeah, that means a life change. But that's something that the Spirit in us initiates and propels regularly. And so, Lord, I I would pray that my brothers and sisters here this morning, they not just recognize this reconciliation that's happened between us and you, and us and one another, Lord, but that we would rejoice in it and that we would go pursue others in order to rejoice in it with them as well. God, we're thankful that it's by grace through faith alone. We don't supply anything to that formula except the sin that makes it necessary. And so I pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts, that you would move us to repentance and faith. God, help our unbelief so that, Lord, We can be fully reconciled, not just to God the Father, but also to one another. Thank you, Lord, for these things, and we ask them in Christ's name. Amen.